You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. First of all, the senior companies are going to be the first to move and the more certain to move. You know, if you buy, and I'll just say, you know, Barrick and Agnigo and Kinross and gold goes up three or four hundred dollars, you can be virtually certain that those stocks will go up. They will also be the first to move. If you buy Ajax Exploration and um, whatever, they may or may not move. So that's the first thing. They're more certain to move, they're the first to move. Um, And they're cheap. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers, and checking in with one of my favorite people in the resource sector, Adrian Day, the veteran money manager and teacher of how to invest in resource stocks. His website is adriandayassetmanagement.com. Adrian, welcome back onto the show. And since you're located in Puerto Rico, I'm wondering if you're experiencing the same levels of inflation that we're experiencing here in the state. The government says it's about 6 to 7% year over year. Uh, John uh, Williams at Shadowstat says it's probably 13 to 14%, which I think is more accurate. Uh, what are you seeing in Puerto Rico right now? Yeah, no, uh, and thank you for having me, Bill. Good to see you again. Happy New Year to you and, and your um, uh, viewers. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing much the same thing here, to be honest. Part of the difference with Puerto Rico, of course, is that most things are imported. Even, even most fruits and vegetables get imported. So you, you do have the possibility of some greater uh, supply chain problems. I mean, sometimes when I go to the grocery store, I'm looking for broccoli, let's say, and all the broccoli is brown. There is no fresh broccoli. Now, when I talk to my daughter in Virginia, she tells me that they sometimes have empty shelves like cat food. There's no cat food today. We don't have anything quite as bad as that, I have to say. But in terms of inflation, I think it's much the same as the rest of the states. I was talking with a friend today, and we were guesstimating. Peter Schiff says more like 15%, but I think definitely something between 10 and 15 is is the real number. And of course, we we all know the problems with the CPI, particularly when it comes to housing. I mean, you know, in fairness to the statisticians, that's a very difficult thing to put into a into a, a, a an index of consumer goods going up. You know what exactly do you measure? But I think um, I do think that what 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 they what the numbers that they show for housing are grossly uh, under understating the real impact. In your analysis this year, this past year in 2021, was inflation primarily due to monetary policy or more so the supply chain issues that we experienced? No, absolutely monetary issue. And I mean, you know, we, if, if, you know, don't listen to me, but listen to, uh, is it Frank Bullard? Sorry, I forget his first name. That's awful. James Bullard, I'm sorry, the St. Louis Fed president. What he said is, a supply shock alone cannot cause inflation, right? What he said is it's a supply shock accommodated by very easy monetary policy. So there's no doubt about that. We can talk about the base effect. It's funny how all the apologists keep hammering on about the base effect when it comes to inflation. But when they tell us how well the economy is doing, Somehow they they don't talk about the base effect. Well, there's a base effect with the economy as well. 
So things like supply, here's a basic thing about inflation on consumer goods, right? If you don't have monetary accommodation, if you don't have a loose monetary policy, if you have a supply problem with cat food, then the price of dog food goes down. You can only have aggregate prices going up if you have accommodative monetary policy, if you have more money in the system. Otherwise, they just upset each other. So absolutely, it's monetary policy. And that's, that's really the reason why I think we're going to continue to see high prices. So interest rates, the Fed is telegraphing or saying that they're raising interest rates um, to curb inflation. Do you think this is all talk or you think they're actually going to follow through this time and keep it there, this way, contra 2018, I ah, believe? Well, that's the key, isn't it? Right. So the Fed traditionally has got more bang for its buck out of talk because talk is cheap. It's got more bang for its buck out of talk than it has out of action. I do think there is, I mean, I'm going to be like the two-sided economist here. I do think on the one hand, there's certainly more willingness among many members of the Fed to be a little more aggressive than they have in the past. Now, a little more aggressive, we have to put that in context. Was it Bostock? Um, and again, I'm really sorry, I forget his first name, but the Atlanta Fed chairman. A president who's not a member of, uh, not a voting member of the FOMC this year, incidentally. Um, but he's talking for uh, we could pull 1.5 trillion of excess liquidity from the financial system. That sounds like a heck of a lot. And it's certainly more than 2018. But put it in context. You know, the Fed by the time they start reducing the balance sheet, if they do. The balance sheet will be about nine trillion, right? To end of 2019, it was under four trillion. So he's talking about maybe pulling 1.5 trillion. We're not even pulling a third, or we're not even pulling a third of what we've increased in two years. So put it in context, it's not exactly very aggressive or very hawkish. Um, I suspect that they will. So, so two things. One is I'm as certain as one can be, but at some point they will retreat, they will surrender um, their hawkishness, whether it's uh, raising interest rates or reducing the balance sheet. They will surrender when there's either bad news on the economy or when the stock market crashes. We know, or when the yield curve goes into uh, an inverted, an inverted shape, they will surrender. I think that they will last longer than 2018 for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, everybody's talking about 2018 as being the analogy, and I think that's fair. I've used that analogy myself, but I don't think they'll be as I don't think they'll back down as quickly for two reasons. One is we actually do have inflation now that we didn't have in 2008, so there's a reason for them to be a little more hawkish to tighten a little more than there was in 2018. In 2018, they were simply undoing their excesses, but now we've got inflation. I think the second thing is that, you know, the Fed, how can I put this, uh, is a bit like the boy who cried wolf. I mean, everybody is saying, oh yeah, the Fed says this, but once they start, they'll back down. You know, the Fed has to hear this. Or are you know, they the not. Wizard of Oz? Are they the boy who cries, cried wolf or the Wizard of Oz? Well, exactly. 
they're both. <laughs> but my point is that the Fed has to listen to this. And, you know, like the father who keeps saying to his son, you know, you, you, uh, you don't come back on, you exceed your curfew, you're too late one more time, I'm going to take the car keys away from you. Well, when he says that 20 times, and then the boy starts laughing in his face, hmm, maybe at that point he does decide to be a little more strict. And so I think the Fed could probably, will probably last a little bit longer this time than they have in the past. But again, the important thing is there's no question in my mind that eventually they will back down and they will back down before they have controlled inflation. Torque Resources is an exploration company establishing a portfolio of premier copper gold early stage projects in Chile. Torque's management and technical teams have a strong track record of raising capital, discovery, and monetization of exploration successes. The company's Margarita Copper Gold project is located within the prolific coastal Cordillera Belt in Chile, which hosts some of the world's largest and most profitable copper mines. The Margarita project possesses excellent discovery potential for a major copper discovery due to the strength of the alterations system, large-scale magnetic targets, and the presence of copper oxide mineralization. Drilling is anticipated to begin in Q3 of this year. Torque trades in Canada under TORQ and on the OTC under TRBMF. To learn more, go to torqueresources.com. That's torqueresources.com. Adrian, over the last year in 2021, I saw gold stock sentiment uh, from the feedback through comments and such and emails just deteriorate significantly to where in December uh, last month, uh, gold stock sentiment amongst retail investors was quite low. Now, as a gold stock money manager, did you experience something similar with your clients or did you have inflows, outflows? How did last year go for you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, our clients tend to be very... Um uh, our clients, I think, tend to be people who understand the gold market and they tend to, they, they, they've watched this movie before. So we tend not to get, I have to say, we tend not to get a lot of panicking with our, with our clients. I think better indications will be, did we get any new clients? <laughs> did we get clients, existing clients say, you know what, I've got an X account, but I want to switch it to gold because gold's so cheap. No, we didn't. We didn't get any of it. On the contrary, we got people who said, well, I've got a gold account. I realize gold is cyclical and everything else, but why don't we just broaden it a little bit more? You can buy copper and uranium if you want. So we didn't have people closing or withdrawals, but we had we had that negative sentiment. And in the fund that I manage, you know, I manage Peter Schiff's um, uh, Europe Pacific Gold Fund. I don't think it's betraying secrets or violating any SEC rule to say that uh, we've had we've had ongoing redemptions in the last sort of three months. Not huge redemptions. Again, Peter Schiff's clients tend to be very sticky. You know, they're believers in gold. But certainly, we've had more redemptions in the last, say, three or four months than we have in a year or two before that. So yeah, there's no no question that sentiment is weak, and you only have to look at the gold ETFs to see the withdrawals from the gold ETFs, the U.S. gold ETFs, which I think have been taken the holdings. So we're not talking about the price now; we're talking about the holdings back to 2013 or 14, I think. Don't quote me on that, but something like that. And with the withdrawals, would you chalk that up as primarily tax loss, probably, or is it just because people are getting bored with gold? A little bit of both. Um, definitely, definitely, you get tax loss selling. 
Um, no question. Uh, but I also think, you know, there is a sort of exhaustion. And when people are looking, I, people need money. They need money to fix a car. They need money for this. They need money for that. Uh, let's let's take it out of the gold fund. We can always buy it back. You know, there's no rush. I think there's definitely that that feeling. And of course, as a contrarian, I think that's precisely when you hit bottom. That's true. I, I listened to somebody kind of, I would say, mock gold investors saying, you guys told me to buy gold stocks nine months ago, but none of you are telling me to buy it now. And I was like, that's the contrarian indication that this might be a good time to enter. <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, the gold stocks, we've had a rally in the last, you know, three, four days. Let me just pull up, you know, the last, yeah, the last four days we've had a rally. But look at the XAU, you know, we've gone from middle of December, 120 to less than 130, right? Nice rally, but not bomb buster. Now, go back a month before that, it was well over 140, 145. So we're much closer, we're still much closer to the three-month low than we are to the three-month high, and that's after this rally. Look at valuations. I mean, obviously, I'm more interested in valuations than, than just, uh, you know, what the index price is. And we are still very, very close. On most metrics, we're in the lowest 25 percentile of the last 20-year valuations. And in some metrics, we're in the lowest 10 percentile, which simply doesn't make sense when gold is at 1800 1800 as we talked last time, I think, is not a bad price for the gold mining companies. They make free cash flow at this level. And we shouldn't forget that. I mean, the XAU today, gold mining stocks are a are lower value on every metric than the S&P in terms of price to earnings, price to book value. And that is something, and yield, the, the gold stocks are cheaper than the S&P. That is something that I have never seen before in the... Many decades I've been doing this because gold stocks typically are, are overvalued. We all know that. It's just a matter of how overvalued. So especially with your experience and you love the producers and you love the royalty companies, that's well known. If they're this cheap, do you even bother buying developers or explorers? Well, I wouldn't say bother. I, 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 would, I would prefer to say the, Venture? the, focus, <laughs> the focus is on... First of all, the senior companies are going to be the first to move and the more certain to move. You know, if you buy, and I'll just say, you know, uh, Barrick and Agnigo and Kinross and gold goes up three or $400, you can be virtually certain that those stocks will go up. They will also be the first to move. If you buy Ajax Exploration and um, whatever, they may or may not move. So that's the first thing. They're more certain to move. They're the first to move. Um, and they're cheap. So I wouldn't say we don't bother looking anywhere else. I wouldn't say to retail people don't bother looking anywhere else. But certainly, you know, that's the place where you should have first focus. But the ex many of the exploration stocks are also ridiculously cheap. They're many of them well cashed up. Um, and, and obviously, we know you get better returns in a good market from the smaller companies. So we're looking at both. So you do invest in developers. Let's talk a near-term developer. Let's say a company that has raised the CapEx to build the mine. 
They're about one year, one year away, they say, from first gold pour. Now, often in that one-year run-up, the golden runway, the stock can double. At least historically, that happens frequently. But there's been many companies, uh, Pure Gold, Arcana Silver, that say we're right at the cusp of production, then they have all sorts of problem and the stock price tumbles. So other people have been on the show uh, in the last couple of months and said, I wait until commercial production is declared because not much happens good when you're commissioning a mine. How do you approach that, uh, Adrian? Yeah, I I agree with your guest. I mean, broadly speaking, because typically from the time they've produced, from the time that the board gives a go-ahead to build to the time they actually start commercial production, not just their first gold bore, when you think about it, you've got much greater risk of things going wrong than you have of things exceeding your your expectations. I mean, you think they're going to raise two hundred and fifty million in bank debt. Well, what can go what can go well? They raise two hundred and seventy. They get a lower interest rate than they were expecting. I mean, typically nothing goes better than expected. They can only go worse than expected. So that's a period. I mean, you don't necessarily have to wait till commercial production particularly if it's a mine that is a potential takeover. Um, So, you know, a a big mine, a world-class mine in a world-class jurisdiction, which is something that is a potential takeover candidate. But, yeah, I mean, you get much better potential in that exciting phase when they're still exploring before the PEA is is, uh, up to the time when the PEA is, or the full feasibility, I should say, is delivered you get much better you much get much better returns in that period and you get much better returns when they are actually producing money because a different kind of investor comes in at that point than you do in the period uh, between yeah so in the last year we've seen a lot more of these carbon streaming and royalty companies uh, come to the market can you share us your perspective on these type of companies we're invested in a few that do different things either carbon royalties or um, I think the whole sort of carbon offset uh, business, this is getting outside of investing, is really a bit of a scam. <laughs> and by that, I mean... You're not making friends with that comment with some people, Adrian, <laughs> but thank you for being forthright. Well, what you're basically saying is, look, you carry on polluting. This is, well, we won't get into global warming. We'll just, we'll just warrant, but everything about global warming is true, Right. But what we're saying is carry on polluting by all means, but just buy an offset from some some glacier in Antarctica or some forest in uh, Sweden that wasn't going to be changed anyway. So you're not reducing in any way the actual carbon emissions, but you're allowing an airline, an oil company, to wear a badge saying we're good citizens and all our carbon is offset. To me, it's nonsense. If you really truly think that, and, and I'm not alone in this, and it's funny, but a lot of the people on the extreme, what we'll call the left or the more climate advocates feel the same way as I do. If you really feel, and again, we're not getting into that argument here, but if you really feel that CO2 emissions are so devastatingly bad, you should be wanting to reduce those CO2 
tick two uh, emissions, not just giving the polluters a get out of jail card, which is what carbon offsets are, in my view. Now I'm going to get feedback on that. Having said that, you know, this market is not going away anytime soon. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it's going to be an incredibly powerful investment over, you know, all of this carbon offset, carbon royalties, all of that kind of thing. It's going to be an incredibly powerful investment over the next, you know, three, four, five years. And what's the biggest and threat? Very cheap at the moment. I'm sorry? And what would be the biggest threat to this investment thesis in your view? I think the biggest, well, there'd be two big threats. One will be that more and more people start to, um, I'll say, come around to my view. I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but people start to feel, wait a minute, we're not really reducing CO2. We're just letting these companies keep on doing what they're doing. I think if more and more people, and by people, I don't mean people like you and me, I mean, um, you, you know, the Black Rocks and the institutions and the people that are driving this whole market, uh, if they start coming around to that view and the rules, the laws, the rules start changing, uh, that would be one thing. The second thing, frankly, would be, as always, excess competition. At the moment, you really don't have... Uh, excess competition in this in this area at all. You know, there's a few companies that are coming out with products. Um, we all know about the um, uh, I forget what it's called now. Base royalty, right? Uh, what's it called? Carbon royalty. Yep, Carbon but, Streaming Corporation. Yeah, but there's a few other companies, Nova Royalty, but Copper and Nickel uh, Royalty Company. They're coming out with a, a, a carbon royalty. Um, Apex Technologies, you may know of them, the company that's developing a, a, a commodities exchange in Singapore. They're coming out with a, uh, a carbon a carbon trading uh, platform. Um, Star Royalties, which is a small uh, uh, gold royalty company, they've bought their first um, uh, their first carbon. Um, uh, they bought their first uh, uh, package, which will allow a carbon offset. So there's a few of them in the works, but by no means is this uh, uh, an overpopulated space. Uh, but that'll be the that'll be the big thing. If so there's too much competition, too much. Okay. And what about a populist revolt to where you know, like we're seeing across against uh, lockdowns and vaccine mandates, where the populace said, "Nope, you're not going to tax us anymore." You're not going to control us. We don't want to be taxed in this regard. Even if they want cleaner air, cleaner water, at the same time, they say, you're not going to tax us on this. I mean, could you see that as a threat to this model as well? I, I think that'll be one more factor, but I don't think that'll be the overwhelming thing because, frankly, most people, if you talk to most people, you talk to them about taxes, you know, carbon offset taxes doesn't come as number one on the list. If it impacts small businesses, I suppose, then it would have broader appeal to uh, let's get rid of this, perhaps. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. You're true there. You're absolutely. That's true. And I mean, you're seeing more and more of this. Uh, you know, the SEC, as you probably know, is wanting companies to disclose their carbon footprints and all of that stuff. Now they're, they're, they're discussing rules for investment advisors to have a disclosure on their carbon footprint and the carbon footprint of the companies they invest in. 
I think you can probably imagine what my disclosure is going to say. But, um, but yeah, when, when you get more and more of that, then it starts to affect people in their day-to-day business. Then I think you start to get pushback. But I still think the biggest thing, I mean, the biggest thing will be too much competition. And we're a long, long way from that at the moment. In 2022, we know you're a gold bull. What commodity are you most bullish on? Well, you know, I, the, the problem with questions like that, and I'm not avoiding the answer. Come on, give me my question. clickbait title here, Adrian. You got to give me the soundbite. <laughs> the, the problem, as always, is are you talking the one with the most potential? Are you talking the one that could spike and then retreat? Are you talking about the one that ends the year with the higher price? Are you talking about the one with the best risk reward? The one that's going to have the biggest run up at some <laughs> point, even if it runs back down. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, silver at some point, I think, will have a very, very good move. Silver, as you know, is undervalued relative to gold right now. Um, silver, for all of the differences between silver and gold, uh, you know, it's differences in terms of the production profile, you know, 70% of silver being byproduct, not pure silver, in terms of the stockpiles, very low stockpiles uh, around the world, particularly government stockpiles. Again, contrast that with gold in differences of the demand profile, much more industrial demand, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The one factor that is the primary factor that moves silver on anything more than a day-to-day or week-to-week basis remains global liquidity. Same for gold. So silver remains a monetary. What really moves silver is the monetary environment. And if gold starts to move up over 2,000, I think you're going to see a proportional and more than proportional move in silver. So your headline. <laughs> Silver yes. to the moon, Adrian Day predicts. Is that a good title? <laughs> but I do think gold, I mean, I do think gold and silver, but gold, first of all, have the best risk reward, in my view, of any metal out there now, any metal. Uh, again, silver could have a shorter term spike, go further. Copper, I think, has an awful lot of potential, both from the demand side, but also from the supply side. But in terms of risk reward, um, I think gold remains the number one. Excellent. All right. Your website is adriandayassetmanagement.com. Please remind listeners what they can find there. Well, we have a lot. Well, I mean, obviously, we have information about the services we offer. Let's not forget that. But we also have a lot of the recent interviews, audio and a visual that we've done recently, including with people like you. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of information on the website. Excellent. All right. Well, Adrian, it's always great chatting with you. Thank you for your insights and coming on today's show. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances 
uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns, as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks, don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can, do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.